to our scripture passage, the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow in the bulletin. Two things before we look at this. One is, uh, Brian mentioned in the prayer that I've been under the weather. Just for the record, I will not be handling the bread or the wine, okay? So... We'll have our words beforehand, but other folks will be handling that, so don't feel like you have to shy away from the table out of uh, fear of pestilence or anything like that. Uh, the other thing is this. I, I can't believe we forgot. Um, I forgot to announce it, but do remember, and I'm sorry we try to keep announcements beforehand, but I do want to say this. You heard us pray for Ruby Groover, um, Keith and Annie Groover, and their daughters are members of our church, and there'll be a benefit uh, auction and concert Saturday night, this Saturday night from 7 to 9 here in the building for Ruby Groover. Um, $5 entrance. Will Gibbs will be playing. He's awesome. All right. And um, I, I mentioned last week that I, who love going to bed early, was kept up late out of enjoying Will Gibbs one night. So I just, you know, I don't, and we've never heard anybody rock out in the sanctuary either. So it's just for archival purposes, be here. <clears throat> but we'd love for you to do that. The, the cause is, is better than good, and that's, uh, that's this Saturday at 7. Love to have you here. John 15, beginning in verse 1. We're, if you're visiting, again, welcome. We are studying through the Gospel of John this year. We were in it the fall and uh, are in it this spring. And we're in a final section of John that is called the Farewell Discourse, and you know, I've mentioned this before, that, that some Bible editions are printed where the words of Jesus, the quotes of Jesus are in red print. And when you get to this section of John, you just have these big swaths of red. And it's really just these final hours that Jesus has. I mean, as we're reading these words, we've been looking at this for several weeks, but we've got to keep remembering, He is. this is the night before... He will be crucified. The night before He will be crucified, that is, breathing down His neck. He's beginning to feel it. And He is hours away from His arrest where, where He'll be handed over to Jewish authorities, Roman authorities, and, and really the, the process begins. Something to keep in mind before we read this is that, as we mentioned last week, Jesus has just washed the feet of and is now instructing friends who are going to leave him. And humanly speaking, when he most needs friends, when he most needs people around him, really, they will leave. And Jesus told them they would, and they said, no, there's no way we will, and they did. But here's the amazing thing to think about. Those men who left are the leadership of the church. And that after the resurrection, when Jesus ascends into heaven, they are, humanly speaking, the leaders of the church as the apostles. So how, how do you get men who are yet again going to drop the ball, how do you get them to be ready, humanly speaking, to lead the church? And here's the thing, even though these words are, are first and foremost directed to those 11 men, Judas Iscariot has left, that this is incredibly relevant for us because I, I suspect that in this room are just 
multiple layers of frustration with the church. The more churchy a place you are, probably the more critical mass of people who are frustrated with the church, even if they're still involved in it. And this is the question. How do you change that? You cannot change it through programs. Boy, has the church proven that. You cannot change it through programs. And even just in-house, if we want to be a church, not that has it all together, we will always have our problems. It is a room full of sinners. But if we want to be a church that is part of a solution, not part of the problem, how, how do we become those people? Because the church is not the facility, it's the people. How do people like us become the people that the church needs? John 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. Let's ask God to bless our time in the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we do want Your church to be different, to be better, to be fruitful, fruit of love, fruit of mercy, fruit of justice, fruit of worship, fruit of heartfelt prayer, fruit of sharing. But, O oh Lord, if it would be that way, we would have to be that way. Lord, we do want joy. We do want fruitful lives. We do want answered prayers. So we of all people need to hear this. Open our ears to hear you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. An older minister... Uh, in our denomination, shared this with me one time. He was talking about when he, uh, at one point, was the president of the seminary that I attended. 
and he was telling me about another professor on the faculty who made a big deal out of the fact that this uh, one night during the week, this, you know, per, this faculty member and his wife had a date night, and that was just absolutely locked into the calendar, didn't matter what conflicts there might be, barbed wire, snipers, you know, around it. That night is date night <clears throat> for that man and his wife. And, uh, and so this, this other minister the, who was president, he shared with me, he said, you know what, I told my wife that, you know what she said to me? And you'd, you'd have to know, his wife, who's no longer with us, uh, a very gentle, kind woman, she said to him, Every night better be date night. <laughs> and when he told that story, I knew exactly what, what she meant by that. She wasn't saying every night take me out and every night we have to go out for dinner and, and all that. But she was saying, we're not going to have this thing where, you know, there's this one night where you're really attentive to me and sort of dote on me and then it's just kind of keep the trains running on time all the other nights. But... I want you to treat me like I'm special all the time. And I want to know that I have you all the time. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, if, if I had just heard somebody say to guys, listen, you know, seminary guys, one night a week, you've you got to have a date night with your wife. I'll, and I do, that's a great thing. I commend that. But how you could just hear that and go, yeah, that's the way to do it. And then from a wife's perspective, she really got it. Say, no, 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 no. I want you all the time with some dates thrown in. And now think about this. Think about how, if I make the statement, you know what? Jesus Christ needs to be number one in our lives. That sounds like a good statement. You know, of all the things that vie for our money, attention, energy, preoccupation, whatever... Jesus Christ should be number one in the list. That sounds like a good assertion, doesn't it? Now, I want to be careful here because be careful when you speak for Jesus, but based on Christ as we find Him in His Word, I suspect that He would say, no, no, I'm not number one of numerous things. I am either your life or I'm not. And it's interesting because already in the Gospel of John, he has very powerfully conveyed that. A lot of times through metaphors or these I am sayings, you know, to a culture for which bread did not mean, ooh, carbohydrates, and I've got to really steer away from bread, but bread was like the staple nutrition in your life. Jesus comes along and doesn't say, hey, my teaching can be your bread. Or he doesn't say, I can show you how to get bread. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Or not, you know what, if you listen to me, I can teach you how to achieve resurrection and find better life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. To people who live in Judea who know what actual thirst is, not like, you know, I'm a little dry right now, but true, deep, physical thirst, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Rivers of water will flow out of him. He's not saying, I'll be the best aspect of your life, or I will be the point man for the spiritual component of your life. He basically is saying, dispense with this notion of components. Dispense with this notion of compartments. 
Either I will be your life, or you will not have life. That's Jesus. Now, you get to this part of this, of this farewell discourse, and really, He does it again. This is the last of the I am sayings. We've bumped into those a bunch in John. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd of the sheep. Um, here's the last one. And I want to look at three things. First is just the metaphor, the image itself, and then a problem, and then the command. All right? So the metaphor, then the problem, then the command. What's the metaphor? The metaphor is you have a vine. Now, you have to try in your mind to picture a vine that is lovely rather than the kind of things that we fight with maybe in, a, in our yards. A vine and branches and a vine dresser. Right, what does the metaphor mean? And Jesus really makes it very clear. He says, first off, I am the vine. Now, again, when we hear vine, very negative connotations. But remember, we're at our best when we read Scripture and try to think, how would the original hearers hear this? The original hearers are Jewish. And to differing degrees, they would know their, what we call the Old Testament. They would know their Bible. And a recurring, and I mean recurring metaphor that you find in the Old Testament is where God's people, Israel, is likened to a vine. Now, I want to read... Where did I put my Bible? Oh, it's down there. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, If you're taking notes, I won't walk down here, but in Psalm 80, it really develops this. And in Psalm 80, it says this. There's this vine that you brought out of Egypt. Now, what is that referring to? The Israelites being brought out of slavery in Egypt. And there's this vine that you sort of replanted, replanted in the promised land. And you took care of it. There's a good man right there. Thank you. Henry Habig is on it. Appreciate that. Um, Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of... See, I was almost quoting it to you. I mean, come on. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, filled the land. So take this vine, the people of God, out of Egypt plant it in the promised land, clear the ground, take care of it. And then it says this, it just it gets ravaged. It's attacked, it's drying out. And here's what the psalmist says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. He basically says the vine is not doing well at all. And you get passages like that in the prophets, in the Psalms. You know, that, that, that was the hymn book, the Psalms, for God's people. And Jesus comes along and says this. It's not just that He's saying, hey, I'm like a vine, if you think about it. He, he begins by saying this. I am the true vine. And Jesus likes to speak that way. In other words, I am what Israel was supposed to be and wasn't. That I'm this vine that in a sense is going to just fill the garden and ultimately fill the earth. And from it come these branches, all different sizes, all different directions, but they get their life and their character from the vine itself. And this is really interesting that this recurring phrase, as he's talking about a vine, that's in this passage is what? In me. In me. The branches have to be in me. 
You have to abide in me. Why is that a big deal? You don't have to turn there now, but I put a quote on the front of the bulletin, and it talks about what theologians call, and I want you to be good theologians and know this, because it's biblical. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. That phrase is nowhere in the Bible. Just like the word Trinity is never in the Bible. But it's getting at something that's big time in the New Testament. And what is that? It's that Jesus is not coming just to be a teacher. And His relationship with His people is not, well, I'm the king up here and you're my subjects down there. I'm the powerful shepherd up up here and you're the sheep down there. And and I'll just kind of take care of you. And I'll be your king and I'll love you and, and you love me back. But it's deeper. That you get these metaphors in the Scripture that really, logically, we don't know what to do with. Jesus will say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, whatever happens to that vine happens to those branches. If the vine died, all the branches would die. If the vine is full of life, all the branches are too. If the vine will live forever, all the branches will too. You think of other metaphors about the relationship between Jesus and His people in the Bible. I'm the head, you're the body. Do you totally logically understand that? Me neither. But whatever happens to the head, to the head affects the whole body. Um, I am the foundation. I'm the cornerstone. You're the rest of the building. And it's one structure. You got it? Uh, not totally. But I guess we're so connected that whatever happens to the cornerstone affects the whole building? Yes. That when God save somebody and brings them to His Son, it's not just that, wow, Jesus took care of me, although He does. But in a mysterious way, we are now in Him. He is still God and we are still creatures. He's always going to be God and we're never going to be God. But that to some mysterious degree, whatever He has, especially after the resurrection, we have. And since He has all life within Himself, we have access to all life. And then you get this other part of the vine, this vine metaphor, and it's the vine dresser. kind of literally, literally means farmer. And that's the Father. And what does it say? It says, look in verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It's the image of someone walking through the garden, looking at the branches, pruning them accordingly. Now we could unpack that for a long time, but just stop and think about this. If you have ever pruned in your yard or someone else's yard, what part do you prune? You prune... Typically, the part that sticks out more than all the other parts. Now, you know, pruning is snip. And in a way, this is an unpleasant thing. But it is the Father's love, not only for His individual branches, but for this whole garden, the church, to snip especially where these things are sticking out further than all the other parts. Did you catch what Jesus said in verse 5? He said, apart from me, what can you do? 
You can't do anything. And it's interesting that Brian even alluded to this in some ways in his prayer. We didn't prearrange this. That there are things that we feel like, you know, I know I need to repent about such and such, but I'm pretty good over here. Like maybe, yeah, you know what, I, my language, whew, I've really got to stay on top of my language. You know, the cuss jar is not working. And um, did y'all ever use the cuss jar? I don't know. Make the donation every time you slip. College days. But, uh, you know, it's not really reforming me. And, I, I, boy, I know that I need Jesus for that. But you feel like, you know what, to, to be a good friend, I don't really need him. Or uh, to really be hospitable, I don't need him. Or to, uh, you know, to be kind. I don't need him because I, because I am nice. And Jesus says, if any aspect of your life is detached from me, the true vine, the life that I only contain, whatever you're doing is lifeless. And it is the Father who in love will come and prune those things. It can be unpleasant. Hebrews 12 calls that discipline, not punishment but fatherly discipline. It's unpleasant at the moment, but it brings this harvest of righteousness. Now, that sounds good. It may, you know, if, if you belong to Christ and you're in Him, the Father for the rest of your life is going to snip things that you thought were awesome about you so that you can have real life. You know, I, my demeanor used to be nicer and I'm not trying to be funny. I used to be nicer till God snipped it down to expose that, you know what? Niceness is not kindness. And I want you to be kind. It's harder. It has more life to it. Niceness, cultural. Now then you get this problem. What is the problem? Even though we may not want to get pruned, you know, snipped on... It's like, well, if it leads to you know, better growth, better, that, hey, that sounds great. But what pruning do we not want to hear? Look in verse 2 again. <clears throat> Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then it's really stark in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, that should leave you to some degree feeling like we've got a problem here. Because if God's the vine dresser and Jesus is the vine and the branches are God's people and we're attached to Jesus, I mean, if we're attached, how could He ever come along and detach us because there's not enough fruit there and then throw us on the fire and burn us? I mean, did you think about that when we were reading this? In a sense, what we're asking is, can I ever lose my salvation if I'm a branch? Now, this is an opportunity to stop and say, how do we interpret Scripture? Two, maybe the two biggest rules for interpreting Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture and interpret the difficult passages in light of the clear ones. What are things we've already heard Jesus say? He said in John 6, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast you away. Ever. 
He says later in John 6, it's my Father's will that everyone that He gave, that he gave to me will come to me. No one's going to be lost along the way. In John 10, He says this, that uh, no one can snatch my people out of my hand. No one can snatch my people out of my Father's hand. The Scriptures really are clear. You don't lose your salvation. Okay, good. What does that mean? What are these branches that seem to be at some level attached to the vine, but they don't bear fruit and they're burned? Who are the original hearers? Jewish men. What was the metaphor that God liked to use for His people often? The vine. What would it be, what would it mean to be a branch that's a dead branch? It would be to be somebody who is descended from Abraham, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, descended from the twelve tribes, and yet to not embrace Jesus as Messiah. And maybe all the time to congratulate yourself. Look, I don't know what to think about this Jesus guy. He's got some good qualities. I don't know what to think about him. But I know that I'm descended from Abraham and we're the people of God. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I have come. If that is you, you'll never bear fruit and you'll be burned. Now, to a room full of Gentiles, we can hear, we can hear that and go, whew, good, I'm glad I'm not going to be one of those guys. There is a New Testament counterpart. I've got a friend who loves to use the word a churchian. Do you know what a churchian is? It's the same ending as Christian, but instead of the root being Christ, it's church. This is very important for Bible belters to hear. A churchian is someone who is in the institution to whom all the promises in the New Testament are given, but is not connected to Christ. And we need to say this semi-regularly, and this is an occasion to do it. If you are here this morning and you have been in church your whole life, not just in it, but on the membership rolls, a member in good standing, you still have to ask yourself, am I what the Bible calls in Christ? The institution of the church has no power to forgive you your sins. If we did, we ought to go out everywhere and say, everybody's sins are forgiven. We have no power to change you or give you eternal life. That's only from being in Christ. Do you know you're in Christ? If you don't know, you might not be. And the good news is this. Jesus says, whoever will may come. Go to Him. But the exhortation would be, do not put any stock or faith in the fact that you are in the church, and that has taken care of things. Because Protestants could hear that and go, yeah, that's what Roman Catholics do. Millions of Protestants do the same. Millions of Protestants do the same. It is not unique to one tradition. I'm in the church, I'm fine. You're fine if you're in Christ. And the third thing is this, there's a command. 
what is the command? What does Jesus say over and over and over? If you underline it, there's underlining everywhere in this passage. He says what? Abide. Abide in me. Abide in me and be fruitful. But there's something I want you to see before we, before we end here. Before Jesus starts saying abide, giving that command, what does He remind His followers again? Look in verse 3. Before He tells them what to do, He reminds them who they are. What does He say? Verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Before He gives any command, what does Jesus say? Remember who you are. You're already clean. You're not clean because of what you did or your words. You're clean because of what I've done and my words to you. Then what does He say? Abide in me. How do you do that? He says, abide in my words. Park in my... How does God reveal Himself to us? This and these sacraments. But even these sacraments ultimately find their meaning through this. Abide in this. I want to say this to you. I, we, I bend over, and this church bends over backwards, not to just send you out the door every Sunday saying, now get out of here and read your Bible like you're supposed to for crying out loud, and pray more. Let's close in prayer. To beat you about the head and shoulders, to make you feel like you've really, you know, been manhandled, and send you out like, now go do better. But we try to always say, you know what, at the end of the day, our Bible reading, our Bible study, our prayer, our fasting evangelism, mercy, whatever. It would never be enough. It would all be tainted. Christ is our righteousness. But you know what? Because that's true, how will that most park in your heart? When you're in His Word a lot. When you talk about, this will sound self-serving, when you talk about the sermon at lunch and keep chewing on it, when you memorize His Word, when you remind each other of what He said, when you read it for breadth and when you read it for depth, we should never feel bad about saying, we need the Bible badly. That's why the whole service is built around it. But does Jesus just want you to memorize the Bible? What does He say? He says, I want you to abide in My love. I want you to abide in my love. In a few hours, their world is going to be turned upside down. And they're going to see their rabbi murdered in a gruesome fashion. And they don't know everything that we know about how God does that and uses it. And he's saying, what will you most need? You must hang on to my words that I love you I love you like the Father loves me, and you're clean. You must live out of that. Let me end with this. If, if you have children, or nephews or nieces, or if you've um, babysat uh, children that you love, you'll know this experience is that when children are just at their cutest, 
most adorable, and you get them and you dote on children, what, what do the grown-ups want them to do? We want the children just to sit there and just receive the doting, you know, and just beam back at us like, oh, dote on me hours more. And what do children do? When you grab children that are adorable and you you just want to hold them and say, just freeze there forever, what happens to children? It's like this emotional tank just starts to fill up. And I mean, it finally crests and they are squirming to get out of your arms and they are off to the races to go conquer the world. There is a lesson there. You may be thinking, if you, if you keep telling people that Jesus loves His people, it's going to demotivate people to obey. And that is a crummy way to live life, because if that means, if that's a bad thing to do, then the way you're going to motivate is through fear and guilt. You will most obey. You will most keep His commandments. You will most pray and have your prayers answered when you abide in Him and abide in His love and live out of the reality that you are already clean. Amen. Let's pray. Father, drive these truths into our hearts. To the one who is here, perhaps in the church, but she doesn't know she's in Christ. Enable her to rest in Him. To the one who's here, who feels that your commands are burdensome, I pray that He would be shown by you that your commands give life. That to abide in those commandments is to abide in your love. Lord, show us as your people what you've done that as the Father loves you, Lord Jesus, you love us. And we pray this in His name. Amen.